Amen, amen. Good morning. Good, good. It is a good morning. Good to see you this morning. Uh, if this is your first time worshiping with us here at Lindsay Lane East, let me first say uh, we knew you were coming, so we bought you something. Uh, we got a free T-shirt that we would love to give you today. If you'll take the card from the back of the seat in front of you, stop by Next Steps in the lobby on your way out. They'll give you your very own Lindsay Lane East T-shirt, and also um, we'll give you uh, some information about our church. And uh, just so that you can uh, make a well-informed decision about whether this is this crazy bunch is where God would have you start uh, getting connected, or whether that would be somewhere else. And so um, we uh, we just want you to find where God would have you. Okay. Uh, this morning we're continuing this series, as you see on the screens, part two of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, what we've seen as we've studied through Mark is that the beginning of Mark, probably about the first eight chapters. Jesus is spending a ton of time in front of the multitudes. He's in front of masses of people, uh, talking with them. Um, he's, uh, he's, he's, he's teaching uh, these large groups of people. But about chapter 9 forward, his focus begins to come to just his disciples. He's spending more and more time. We're seeing more of, of the text talking about him spending time with his disciples, preparing them for his departure. And so if you have a Bible, go on and open up to Mark chapter 10. That's where we're going to be. Now, in the text today, Mark tells us about two teaching points that are, that are pretty popular sermon passages. Um, each one of them is usually its own sermon, um, but we're going to do them both in the same one, which I know you're nervous, but hey, did you see the second ser- first service people when you got here? So we got them out of here on time, okay? So yes, <laughs> we're going to be covering two sermons, but the reason we're doing what, what I hope, man, if as far as as far as teaching the Bible, the one thing I hope that you've heard from me in the last uh, over two years now is that what we're learning is that oftentimes when we zoom in so tight on just two, three, even sometimes one verse, and we read it and we try to apply that verse to our life, oftentimes what happens is we miss so much of the beauty of God's Word because that verse is part of a larger piece that's part of a larger piece that's part of a larger piece. And so one of the things that I want to do today, even though it's scary that we're take, tackling two sermons in one, is because I believe when we look at these two stories together, as one message, we're going to see a clearer picture of what Jesus was saying in both of them. And so this morning, my hope is that we see the faith of a follower. What does it mean to have faith as a follower of Jesus? So I'm going to read the whole passage, uh, which you don't know how scary that is because it's like 20 verses. Um, But then we're going to come back and look at it together after I pray, okay? So I'm going to get in in verse 13, and we're going to read through verse 31 again so we know what's going on. Mark chapter 10, 13 through 31, the Lord's word, the word of the Lord says this, uh, people were bringing little children to Jesus in order that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the little children come to me. Don't stop them because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. After taking them in his arms, he laid his hands on them and blessed them. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up, knelt down before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these from my youth. Looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, 
follow me. But he was dismayed by this demand, and he went away grieving because he had many possessions. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astonished at his words. Again, Jesus said to them, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished, saying to one another, then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, because all things are possible with God. Peter began to tell him, uh, look, we've left everything and followed you. Truly I tell you, Jesus said, there's no one who has left house or brother or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the gospel who will not receive a hundred times more now at this time houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children and fields with persecutions and eternal life in the age to come. Father, we thank you for your word, um, God, because we know it is, it is truth and um, God, it's not a man's way of trying to make sense of what you want us to know. But God, we believe the word of God is what you would have us to know. Um, God, it's, uh, it's not made weaker uh, by man's involvement in it. But God, what we have before us, God, is your word. Uh, God, and through it, we know that you want us to know you, uh, to know more about you, and to know who we are in light of who you are. And so, God, I pray that today as we study this text, and God, there's, there's encouraging parts of it, there's challenging parts of it, God, and there's, uh, there's, there's gut-wrenching uh, uh, conviction in my own heart, God, over things. And God, I pray uh, that you would just give us clarity of mind to see your word for what it is. And God, as always, that you would teach us to know you and that you would be with us as we study today. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Amen. One of the things that we do as human beings with almost everything that we get our hands on is overcomplicated, right? Uh, it's one of the things that we do. Uh, we just finished up uh, the county tournament in baseball and softball this weekend. Uh, neither one of my kids' teams won, and it was the ump's fault. That's what you're supposed to say, right? Don't you blame it on the ump's? That's what you're supposed to do. Uh, no, um, we were far from the best teams in, in each of their age divisions, but one of the things that I've noticed about coaching both of my kids in ball is that things have changed since I was a kid. Uh, apparently, we didn't know a lot about what a baseball, softball swing was supposed to look like when I was a kid because they just handed you a bat and said, figure it out. Kids had good swings. Some kids didn't. You just, you just quit if you didn't have a good swing. There was no coaching in that. And now, uh, Elsa Joe was on an 8U team. Most of the girls on her team went to hitting lessons, and they were learning about the basic fundamentals of the swing, right? They were paying a coach to break that stuff down. And, and a good hitting coach, however, doesn't show a player how complicated the swing is. The worst thing that a, that a good hitting coach can have is for an eight-year-old girl to step in the batter's box thinking about 25 different things, trying to get every detail just right, because that girl is going to swing and miss. The hitting coach, his goal is to help the girl grasp the complexity of the softball swing by recognizing its simplicity. If a girl sees this complex swing as natural and simple, that girl can then step in the batter's box and smoke it. I think Jesus here is conveying something similar about faith in him. There's a beautifully natural, simple aspect to our faith in Christ that way too many people have been overcomplicating. 
Just like the softball swing, it is really complex on one hand. Life in Christ, what it looks like to follow him, it's a, there's a complexity there, no doubt. But the best way to grasp the complexity of life in Christ is to first recognize its simplicity. In the text today, Jesus uses an interaction with a child and an adult to show his disciples what real faith looks like. So we're going to look at three points today. Um, as we go through this, the first one is this real faith is a dependent faith, a dependent faith. Notice what, uh, notice what's verse 15. Jesus says, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God, like a little child will never enter it. We saw last week in the message that, that children were not the center of society like they are today, Right? Children did not make decisions for the home like they do today. Children did not have a voice in the home. They were just there. Like that was not what they did. Worth in this day was determined by value added. Do you know what I mean by that? Value added meant what can they bring to the table? You only had dignity, you only had worth in what you brought to the table. And I don't know if you been around kids much, they use a lot of resources. A lot of resources. Right? They the time. And the same they're just they're using resources. And until a certain age, they can't really provide many resources back in return. And so in Jesus' day, especially in the Greek world, they you once you got old enough to work and earn, then they might be viewed a little bit differently. Children were not held and doted on by adults. There was not such a thing as baby talk in the first century in Greek. Okay, you don't do that. And a good rabbi, a good Jewish rabbi, certainly wouldn't have time to waste on young children. I mean, rabbis were interpreting the law of the Lord for people, not hugging and kissing babies. And then comes Jesus, the greatest Jewish rabbi to ever live, who was well known for his down-to-earthness. He was a everyman kind of guy who was totally fine spending time with those on the lowest rungs of society, and that included young children. Verse 13 just says that people were bringing their children to him in order that he might touch them. We don't get really why from the text. We find out what he did later, but the same story is retold in Matthew and Luke, which is always a good thing for you to do, to look and see where these stories are told in the other Gospels. But Matthew actually says that these parents wanted Jesus to put his hand on them and to pray for them. Now, we don't know if they had, they were, these were a lot of kids with health issues uh, or just really nuts, <laughs> and they wanted Jesus to pray for, for peace in their home. We don't know the context of why they were bringing them. But either way, Jesus' disciples knew that he didn't have time for this. He had bigger things to do than to pray for babies. So they shut it down like good bodyguards. They just protected him from it. Random folks, I run those parents off. But Jesus says this in verse 14 and 15. When Jesus saw it, he was indignant. Now, the first service didn't know what indignant meant either. That's a word we don't use a lot. I'm assuming you don't grasp it either. Because I've read this verse a bunch, and it just hit me this week. What does it mean that Jesus was indignant? Well, I'm going to put it in Lindsay Lane East talk for you. You ready for this? Jesus was ticked. Can I use that term? Ticked. 
Like that, that's the best way I can describe indignant. Oftentimes we think of Jesus, this is how we picture Jesus saying this. Let the little children come to me. Don't stop them because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And that's the way we picture Jesus saying it. It says he was indignant. Here's what I know about the word indignant. There's always a finger. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> and there's a choppy way of talking. So this is how it more than likely would have sounded when Jesus saw that his disciples who are supposed to understand his ministry and know what he's about are sending children and their parents away from him. He, with a finger in their chest, says, let the little children come to me. Do not stop them because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. You see, you sense the, 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 the passion difference in the way that we read that. So Jesus is saying here with passion that the kingdom of God belongs to children. And that would have been a shocking statement for those to hear. And I'll be honest, it's shocking for me to hear. Because I thought we were supposed to mature. Like I thought the kingdom of God was about maturity, it was about understanding God more. But now you're saying like, I'm supposed to be like a kid, okay? So, uh, different passages, a bunch of different messages uh, from pastors over the years, a bunch of different ways. But it becomes clear as means by that he has next with this rich young man. And I think Mark's point of putting these two stories together, they actually don't happen necessarily like right after each other. There's, a, there's, a, there's a, a signal of that in the text that shows us that maybe this was a little time after. But Mark puts these two together for a purpose. And I think we're supposed to see the differences between Jesus' interaction with the children and the rich man. Because we're not just supposed to ask, what does faith look like? What does faith like a child look like? How am I supposed to do that? We have to see it in context. We have to ask the question, what is the main difference between the way a child approached Jesus and the way the rich man did? He comes up wanting to know what he can do. Literally what he says. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And then Jesus, grasping that he ain't got a clue, throws out four of the Ten Commandments and then one that he just picks from the Old Testament somewhere else and tosses it up. How about those? And the guy, and Jesus Jesus is just, and then he says, okay, well, here's one more. Go sell everything you have, right? Like the rich man wanted to come to Jesus and he wanted to do something. But why were these children being brought to him? Why were these children coming to Jesus? Because there was, they were coming. I believe the biggest difference between the rich man and the way a child approaches Jesus is dependency. A little child is totally dependent on the needs of another. Children cannot survive on their own except for Mowgli. You remember Mowgli? Good old Mowgli, raised by wolves. Bagheera comes to him after his parents die, raises him. Baloo steps in, leads him astray a little bit. Anyway, that's a movie and a book. A book from 1895, by the way. Did y'all know that? It was a series of short stories. Anyway, Wikipedia. Children can survive on their own. They are fully dependent. And we must approach the Lord in this way. I believe that's what the text was. It shouldn't have been because Dia predates Jesus' ministry on earth. 
It goes back to the scroll of Proverbs that would have been in that huge stack of scrolls in the uh, where Jesus went to hear, Jesus and his disciples went to hear uh, the scrolls read. Proverbs would have been there. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. What else? Do not rely on your own understanding. In all your ways, know him, and he will make your path straight. The author of the proverb knew that the key to trusting in God was not relying on your own understanding. This idea has been in the scriptures. It's a full, dependent trust in the Lord. And can we just be honest that children grasp this much better than we do? They understand dependence. They understand what it means to have to just totally depend on others. We watched a movie last night. And I'm blanking on the name of it. But it was a cartoon movie. uh, Monsters versus Aliens. Okay? Okay, anyway, whatever, I don't know how you feel about it. There was some, there was some mixed reviews in that, in that O. Um, but we watched it, and, and Daniel got scared from an intense um, because the monsters and aliens, I don't know, whatever. But what does my son do when he's scared? He comes and sits by his mom, against her arm, right? He needs comfort. He knows that I can't do anything about this situation. I don't want to help me. Children understand dependence so much more than us because it comes naturally to them. I believe this is why studies have shown the older a person gets, the less likely they are to become a follower of Jesus. A study I looked at this week showed that 63% of Christians today began trusting Christ before the age of 14. 63%. And I know what you're thinking. Well, let's spread that out over the rest of the ages. That's not terrible, Heath. Well, the same, same study also showed that of that 37%, 34% trusted Christ between 15 and 29. So what does that mean? That means that 97% of Jesus' followers today trusted in him before the age of 30. Another way, only 3% of Christians trusted in him from 30 and up. Why? What is the hindrance? What keeps adults from trusting in Jesus while it seems to come so easy for children? I believe God's word says it's all about dependence. So let's look at this rich man's interaction. Verse 7, sitting out on a journey, Jesus was. A man ran up, knelt down before him, asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Already he's messed it up. He gives him this... These laws that he would have already known. And the man says, I've kept all of these from my youth. What else can I do is the assumption. Now, I don't know the guy. I'm sure he's a good guy. Probably a fun hang. I don't know. But I don't think he's being completely honest. (laughs) I don't think he's being completely honest. What it becomes clear is that the rich man here has become dependent on his ability to keep the law to save him. He wants to do some eternal life because that's what we as human beings do when we see a goal before us as adults. We know we have to do something. We have to ask the questions. Man, uh, as I've interacted for 14 years of ministry with adults and in that time dealt with teenagers and kids, the biggest difference I see, adults are much more quickly to tell me that they're not bad people. They do good things. I'm a good dad. I'm a good mom. I'm a good neighbor. Like I, I, I love my family. I do all these things. We start making all these excuses as I talk with people. That's what they tell me. 
Why do I need to be saved? My neighbor, he deserves hell because he's a bad dude. I'm not that bad. This is the problem. Oftentimes we're dependent on something that we have done or something that we can do instead of being just totally dependent on God. That's the first thing that Jesus is teaching us is that real faith is a dependent faith. We've got to trust in him alone. But the rich man was also dependent on his wealth. But what Jesus teaches him quickly is that following Jesus is also a costly faith. Note taker, that's number two, costly. And lies to Jesus' piety and his goodness. Jesus says this, well, well, that's good. That's good to hear. Glad, glad you're such a good dude. Hey, one more, thought, one more, one more thought. Go sell all you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Now, Jesus knows the guy hasn't been perfect in the law of God, but he doesn't even go there. He doesn't even address the fact that the man's lying. He goes after the one thing he knows he can't lie about. He goes after his wealth. You see, Jesus hit at the heart of his dependence by asking him to sell everything and give to the poor. And Mark tells us at the end, the worst part of the story, the saddest part of the story, the man was dismayed by this demand and he went away grieving because he had many possessions. Now, some people read this story and they say, so if I want to trust in Jesus, I need to have a yard sale and I need to give the money away. Is that what this text says? Well, maybe, but probably not. Of following Jesus is directly tied to your dependencies. Tied to your dependencies. Rich man, his dependence was in his stuff and in his wealth. Just told him that Jesus has a guy who doesn't want to follow him because he loves his family too much. You know what Jesus calls him to do? Abandon his family. Not abandon, but to leave his family and follow him. And goodbye to does in that moment. says, no, you can't follow me now. Right? If you're wrestling with whether to trust in Jesus, you need to know that following Jesus will cost you something. And if you want to know what it will cost you, look to the things that you depend on the most. Those will be the things that need to go so you can follow Jesus more closely. Are you seeing this with me, church? This rich man already had two legs on a, on a, on a stool of dependence. He's dependent on his, his ability to, to do something, to earn something. This wealth dependence. And he just wants to add this third leg to his stool, just to make him a little bit more sturdy, just this, to add this dependence on Jesus along with these other dependencies. But Jesus asked him to remove the other dependencies and just trust him. Cut the legs off of the stool and just have one. And I know that doesn't make sense. A one-legged stool. But it's the best I could come up with. But the man walked away grieving and unwilling. So if you're not yet following Jesus, you need to think about this as you wrestle with this decision. That's why Jesus said to those following him at another point in, in his ministry, nobody builds a tower in his backyard without checking the bank account and lumber prices first. 
And if that convicts you because you have an unfinished deck in your backyard, that's not the point, right? We're talking about spiritual things. I've got shoe mold that's not been caught, okay, in my house from eight years, okay? I'm with you. I know, I know. That's not what it's about, though. It goes to a tower without making sure that you have enough money to pay for it. If, if, if you don't, then you're like a fool. And then he says, no king ever declares war on another nation without first, no good king ever does so without first making sure he has the money and the resources and the power to get it done. And so, if you're not a believer, I know, it's the worst sales pitch ever. Do a minute. Because I know what you're thinking. Tell him, he. Tell him. Get it, son. Listen. In Christ at a young age. And with childlike faith. I had one dependence. One thing I was dependent on. In that time. And it was Jesus. But what happens as we get older. As we get smarter we get wiser and we realize how the world works and we realize that there are other things that look good to our eyes other things that we see people around us doing pursuing and seem to be finding joy in and we're drawn our hearts are drawn to that lifestyle to to that way of living life that was never a less tool or for some of you that trusted Christ later, maybe one you've sawed off that's back. Christian, may I remind you that when you signed on, you signed on to only have it on. One thing that you're full your heart to. And if that's changed, you need to repent. From that thing, cut the list off the stool and trust in Jesus again, not to be saved again, but to remind you and God that you are on, you are, you are with Christ and that you are trusting in him alone. I can remember being a teenager who was trying to pursue Christ. I can remember seeing what my friends were doing. Decisions they were making, places they were going. And I'd like to tell you that I was like, hey man, loving Jesus is so much better than that. <laughs> but it didn't feel like it in the moment. It didn't feel like it. I felt like I was missing out on something. And there were times where I began to make the decision. And what I realized, now looking back, looking back on a life of sometimes following God, sometimes giving in to vices and dependencies. I can say what Jesus says here in the text, that this faith is not a faith that is lacking, but it is a faith that is rewarding. Jesus says that following him is a rewarding faith. After hearing that the rich are so dependent on their wealth that it is nearly impossible for them to follow Jesus... You remember that in the text? Jesus said it's harder for a rich man or a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is 
for rich men to enter the kingdom of God. If you've been in church a long time, you've probably sat under a pastor that told you about a gate that was outside the city of Jerusalem. And there was this gate that was strangely whatever. I don't know. I've heard it a bunch of different ways. That the camels, that when they were led through that gate, they had to unpack the camels and he had to duck his head or something to go through the gate. Here's what I'll tell you. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not calling into question any of that, but I can't find any archaeological evidence or historical evidence that any of that's true. So, but don't call your pastor and tell him that, that I said that, okay? Somebody else said it, not me. I, I think that demeans what we're trying to get. Jesus says it is impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God as a man. Jesus is saying it's, it, it, just as a camel passing through the eye of a needle is impossible. It is impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. But notice what he says after that. But with God, all things are possible. Right? That's the catch. Because I'll tell you, even as a young kid who was raised in a Christian home, was taught right from wrong, taught the gospel of Jesus Christ, it was impossible for me to inherit the kingdom of God apart from God. God stepping in on my behalf. So what's different? What Jesus is saying, yes, all of you who have trusted in Christ, it was impossible for you to do that on your own. God intervened on your behalf and, and, and brings, brings life to your dead heart. But there's something he goes above and beyond to say that this is somehow the rich people. There's, there's, a, there's a dependency on something that is very real, a dependency on, on, on money that just made it extra impossible for them to follow Jesus. But Peter says, I love Peter. He's sitting there like, well, hey, uh, there's nobody rich here. <laughs> None of us are that, Jesus. Like uh, maybe Matthew, but like for us, man, we're, we're not those rich people. We gave it all up. Verse 28, he says, we gave it all up to follow you. What do you, what do you mean? Four of the disciples had left their family fishing business to follow Jesus. Another was a tax collector who left good money. Others gave up a considerable number of other things, including some sketchy stuff that they were making money doing. But Jesus answers them this way. Truly, I tell you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the gospel, who will not receive a hundred times more now at this time. He lists all those things again. And then he adds, and eternal life in the age to come. Many of you who are first will be last and the last first. Jesus says that there is an interesting exchange rate built into his kingdom. Whatever is given up to follow Jesus, Christ promises to pour out a hundred times more than what you've given up. I know some of you are financially minded, and right now you're thinking, so if I drop a $1,000 check in that bucket today on the way out, I ain't got to be good at math. God going to give me $100,000 this week? No, probably not. Maybe. I wouldn't test it. I wouldn't test it because that's not the point. I know it sounds like a money-making scheme, but that's not the point. Jesus is making Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God brings benefits that outweigh any that we experience outside his kingdom. We talk about the kingdom of God here at East as an already, something that we experience here on earth, but also a not yet. This means that there is some level of the kingdom of God that we get to experience here. 
When we trust in Jesus, we enter into this awesome family. We get little tastes of life the way God intended. We taste relationships the way God intended. We begin to live life fully dependent on God the way he intended. However, it's still imperfect. But there's a day coming in which Christ will bring an end to all the things that are imperfect and will bring the perfect and full kingdom of God into reality right before our eyes. We'll ex- we'll, heaven will meet earth in a union that will not end. We will experience the fullness of God's presence and the fullness of what we have only had tastes of here on this earth. Can you imagine how awesome that will be? To be finally and fully in God's presence forever physically with the one who died for us and the one who created us. Let me ask you a question. What is not worth giving up for that? What's not worth giving up for that? Nothing is the answer. Nothing. Whatever dependencies you have, whatever vices have a hold on you, know that God wants those. He wants to be your only dependence, the one your full trust is in. He wants you to trust in him like a child would, full dependence. And listen to me, whatever you give to give up to follow Jesus more closely ain't worth keeping anyway, church. It's not worth keeping anyway. God will take care of you. There's an old hymn I grew up singing. My dad led up in the church that I grew up in. Rocked for me. Its words are this. Nothing to thy cross. Come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for foul eye to the fountain for I die. I think the author of these ideas from chapter 10 in mind. Nothing in my bring simply to thy cross. I you were my G can. And it is a beautifully complex but amazing words to show us how to do it. The first is repent. I've already touched on it. Repent means to say, God, I am making a mess with what you've given me. You gave me life and the fire. Let's repent. Repent says, I'm a sinner. I can't do this. And then we need to believe. We're giving it all to God, and we believe that he is the only one who can lead us and guide us and to fix our crazy mess. And today, if you've not trusted in Jesus, and I've talked about, I've made the worst sales pitch ever. I've talked about how God is going to require something. He's going to cost. Something's going to cost to follow Jesus. But what I hope you heard me say is that anything God calls you to give up is going to be poured back on you in this life or the next, in eternal life. But today, if you'd like to trust in Jesus to save you from your sin, we're going to sing a song here in a minute, and I'm going to stand at the back like I always do. And you just need to talk with me. Say, man, I need to trust in Jesus. I'm counting the cost. Man, I'm ready to build the tower. I'm ready to go to war. Let's go, baby. And I, I, I want to help you. I just want you back through, repent and believe, and help you call on the name of the Lord to save you today. If you're still a Christian, I got a question, or if you are a Christian already, I mean, I got a question for you, though. Are you still clinging to Christ alone? 
Following Jesus isn't just a one-time cost. It's a life of sacrifice now. And I, I see people around me who aren't following Jesus that I can't and won't pursue anymore. And, and as I said, sometimes I'm jealous. Sometimes I want to taste those things because it looks joyful. It looks fun. It looks like something that would, that would give me a heart flutter. I don't know. It's a weird way to say that. They're talking and acting in a particular way, acting on impulses that I've already laid before the Lord. And what I'm recognizing now, looking back at my life, and I preach and teach this to myself for the future of my life, that a hundred times is true. True. I got a beautiful, godly wife to prove it. I got a family that loves, is learning to love Jesus. I've got a church. It loves the Lord and wants to study God's word. I've got, I've got, I've got, man, just so many opportunities to minister to people. And, and, and again, I haven't done everything right and I've still got sin in my life and God's wore me out this week about it and I'm going to deal with him this week. But the hundred times kingdom principle is about more than wealth and relationships. When the world tells me, take this, drink this, smoke this, do this, because there is joy in this thing, I've chosen instead to cling to Christ as my fulfillment. I must pursue joy in the ways Christ has prescribed. And when I do, I find more joy than any of these other vices have to offer. Today, Christian, is there any repentance that needs to take place? If so, take care of that. Cut the legs off the stool and depend on the only one that matters. Salvation in Christ. I'm going to say a prayer, and after I pray, the altar will be open. You can come up here and kneel at this altar up here. Nothing magical about the steps. We don't sprinkle anything on them. When you come and pray up here at the altar, there's a promise that I make you. It's at your church that's behind you. They're not taking pictures to post on Facebook. They're not wondering what's wrong with you. They're praying for you. They're going to do that for you. If you want to come to this altar and voice a prayer for yourself or somebody else, you can pray right where you are, and God hears you the same but you don't get the benefit of your church praying for you. I'll also be at the back if you need to talk to me about something that's going on in your heart, a next step that you need to take. Um, you need to trust in Christ. Please come get me. But I'm going to say a prayer, and after I pray, uh, we'll stand and sing and respond however you need to. Okay? Father, God, I come humbly. God, there's, God, my wife's in this room, and she knows me better than anybody here. God, she knows the, the ways I struggle. She knows the, uh, the, the, the times I lose my cool. She knows the times when, when I don't have compassion like I need to, when I don't love the way I need to. God, she knows me better than anybody else in this room, but God, you know me even better than her. God, you know the sins that creep into my mind and my heart. God, you know the things that I've struggled with. God, the same is true for everybody in this room. God, you know the depths of our hearts. You know the wickedness that we deal with. God, and I, I just pray, God, that in this, this next season of our church, you know, whatever it looks like, you know, whatever you want to do here, God, that me as pastor, and that this church, God, we would be known as people, God, who have one-legged stools. 
God, that the vices that, that are dragging so many other Christians down around the world, God, that these people here would not be known by those things. God, that you would lead us to repent of those things. God, you would lead other people to step into our life to lead us to repentance if that be the case. God, that you would lead us to a life of accountability as a church to love you above all else and to keep things pure in our hearts and minds. To raise this next generation, God, that so many of them are in, in their building C right now, God. We can show them what life is supposed to look like. That the next generation of Lindsay Lane East struggles with these vices less than we do. And then the next, even less. And the next, even less. Because we're, we're fostering a life of obedience. God, and may it start in my heart and in my home. Father, I thank you for the way that you bless us and use us, God, in spite of us. God, the way that you bless this church in spite of an imperfect pastor. But God, you have a vision and a purpose, God, that exceeds anything we could ever dream of. And God, we're just, we're just asking you to do it. And God, help us to come alongside you. Use the spirit in us, God, to lead us to repent when we need to repent and to trust in you more when we're lacking it. God, help us to have a dependent faith and know the cost and to recognize the reward so that we give you it all. Father, I thank you for the way that you've poured out your love on us and continue to do so, God. Lead us to repent now. In Jesus' name, amen. Guys, let's stand, sing however, respond however you need to.